This is the Sharp End Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut, protecting you while protecting the environment. Mammut is not only focused on integrating leading safety technology into every product so you can confidently push your boundaries, but also committed to continuing to preserve what is worth preserving and to improve what is not yet perfect. This episode is also supported by Kavu. I'm Ashley, the creator and host of the show, and I'm super stoked about this episode. This episode was recorded live on the evening of December 27th, 2019 at Alaska Mountaineering and Hiking in Anchorage, Alaska. Please note that there is some spirited language that I opted to not edit out. This was the second ever live recording that I've ever done, and we were honored with an impressive turnout. I got to sit with Charlie Cicera as he recounted a trip he took with Jack Tackle in 2002. The two of them decided to climb Mount Augusta, which is a 14,000-foot peak that straddles the U.S. and Canadian borders. The south side of the mountain lies in Alaska, and the north side belongs to Canada. So, I hope you enjoy. We had an adventurous family, and it really, uh, the, the, the soul of it was my grandmother who would make up these stories. When I was a little kid, I had a little hobby horse, and uh, we had a map of the world, and she would stand next to the map and then throw a dart against it, and then I would have my little hobby horse, and she would tell a story of where the dart would be, and see these adventures around the world. And so it was their inspiration that really got me thinking about beyond uh, where we live. So we grew up in Big Lake and, uh, and in Anchorage and uh, had this wonderful life of kids before, um, you know, we would, we, were, we would go from Rogers Park to Flat Top uh, on our motorcycles and our snow machines before we were in sixth grade, right? We just went. And we were little hoodlums with our adventures. So we had, that's how we started. And then uh, it was, the climbing was a result simply of wanting desperately to go and, uh, and then trying to find a way into this building. That's the other irony because this was, where, this was the center of the universe for climbing at AMH <laughs> and you know, the cool kids were here and trying to be a cool kid was not easy. <laughs> and so that's another little element of the story. But um, so I, I had, uh, that's all I wanted to do is it was, I, I sacrificed careers and marriages and life for climbing. And fortunately, I got to live through the experiences and uh, not in large part to some of the people in here and which was part of the story this evening. So um, I re- I'm just really appreciative of you guys being here and, and Evan uh, for helping on this element and, uh, and Ashley. So, yeah, Thanks. I'm just a local kid. That's it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> just, lo- just, just a couple local climb. kids. Um, yeah, I'm honored to be sitting with you. And... Um, yeah, I've read a bunch of your experiences, um, and the one that we're going to talk about is from, drum roll please, Augusta. Is this? Um, who here has uh, heard that story? A few people. All right. Um, it's, 
it's a real Alaskan tail. Well, really. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so um, I've read both accounts. I've read your account, and I've read Jack Tackle's account. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're both pretty raw. So um, as you know, uh, what I do for the podcast is um, I usually have the interviewee tell the story, and at the end we talk about what went wrong and what were the lessons learned with the goal of minimizing future incidents. That's the whole point. So I'm going to go ahead and let you sort of take it from here, um, sure. start to tell the story, and then if I have any questions or if I'm confused, I'll go ahead and interrupt you. Um, please, the audience, like hold questions at the very till the very end, but I will open it up at the very end for questions and answers. But uh, yeah, let's All right. let's get this... Let's get, get it going. this party started. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was near the, uh, I was more uh, near the mature end of my uh, alpine climbing career and was really still thinking that I was special. You are special. Come on. But I mean, there's right? a point when you're deluded and, and you think that you can do anything, right? And so, um, and you have enough experience and you have the, physical capacities to still do things and there's always okay what are the activity what are the things how are you going to show your craft in this thing and so that was the space I was in and had a lot of um, experience um, that was hard in Alaska leading up to it so I wasn't a, uh, a young person or a, it was fresh to me like you mean your experiences in the mountains weren't yeah. young yeah yeah they were not they were not new and so Jack Tackle and I had become friends, and um, he had enlisted me in uh, some of his uh, adventures, including some of the, uh, like, we, we, I worked for Basque and a couple of these clothing companies and boot companies who developed boots, and I was on part of the professional team on that at that time. And um, so we were friends, and um, there's always, um, and Jack is one of, it was, is and was, um, right at the uh, pinnacle of uh, sort of Alaskan and American alpinism. And and, it, and everybody knew him and everybody loved him. And the women loved him because he's, he's really he's cute, you know. And, and, yes. but, but he's also, in, he's an endearing person. And so you want to be with him, whatever way that ha happens. And so um, we talked about adventures but hadn't put anything together. And then he went to, um, uh, was guiding in Aconcagua, yeah, in Chile, or is Argentina, which is right on the edge there. Anyway, um, he comes, he went down and uh, got sick with Guillaume Barre. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, it's an autoimmune disease, a neurological disease. And uh, he just about died, and they medevaced him from Mendoza to uh, Jackson Hole and is in the hospital for, oh, I don't know how many months what it was, but the disease is, progresses from losing feeling your toes and moves up your body neurologically, and then eventually, if you don't address it, it's, you quit breathing, and so it's fatal. And he um, was really, really sick, and uh, so we all tried our different ways of supporting him, um, encouraging, and, but remotely you can't. So my idea was to... You gave him a cactus. Yeah, I gave him, a, I, gave him a, I sent him a, a barrel cactus, which is 
in our family has significance about when you're injured or trying to recover. There's a there's a barrel of cactus shows up, right? And so we gave him, and it turns out that that's his favorite plant. I didn't know it, right? <laughs> so we was from my family to him, and so the barrel cactus. And then I had um, this idea of which had a, what I gave him Augusta. Basically, it was the idea for a, a reason to get fit again. And the way Augusta came about was a friend of mine was looking at these photographs of King Peak and asking about how this thing was, how to climb King, and we were talking about it. And then in the background, about 20 miles, was this um, image of this little, this little North Face thing. And, uh, <laughs> little North, North Face thing. Yeah, and we, so I, just, I didn't tell my friend what I was looking at. I just like, you know, just put it in my pocket because, you know, you collect these ideas and when you're competitive in the sport, you hold them really close because, you know, your competitors will steal them from you. And it's a very, it's a really funny experience, but you don't share it because, you know, you only get to be first once. And, and, and so we're, Remember we're, that, we're, people. We're, we're, we're greedy at this stuff, right? You know, and you want to, you want to be the cool guy that gets it. So I see this, I see this image. And then that winter, I, fl I had fall claws fly me over, and I flew the, f the, the face and photographed it and looked okay. And then I said, Jack, here's the deal. You get better, we'll climb this, right? And that was the, um, the opportunity for him and the, sort of the, to feel um, like there was, there was hope. There's hope. Right, there's hope out there. So um, mm -hmm. he gets better. How long uh, did it take him to get better? I was a, it was it was six or seven months, and it was a year, um, over a year before he came back. And what's amazing is that he was fit enough a year later to actually climb. And in retrospect, it probably he probably wasn't there yet. Right? Well, he had a series of those events, but that's that's yeah. later. Yeah, no, he's full of scars. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so we. Um, and then the other irony of this, we couldn't, we, our friend Paul Claus couldn't fly us because he didn't have insurance to fly into Canada. So we had to drive to Kalani and then fly from Kalani with Andy Williams back over to the face, right? So um, we, we, uh, we landed the face. It was clear. So what, cool. okay, so what, month, so what month are we in here? I, I think it was in June. Okay, so June, June of, of what year? Of, 2001, or so, I think it is. That was a great Maybe somebody can tell me. But so we land. Um, it's there. It's obvious. Good condition. Looks like it's good conditions. Yeah, it's good conditions. We we ski. Uh, we uh, put a camp in, and and we were probably a mile or two or more from the um, the face, and we skied on on the crust. You could even see the ski tracks, right? With it, and so because it was so crusty. Yeah, and just perfect. Just like. Oh, this is easy, you know. And we went up there and looked at the, where we were going to be, and went back and, you know, ate like, um, you know, dogs or whatever. We just eat, eat, just load up. You had a feast. Yeah, you load up and then get ready to go for the next day. And then, so the next morning we got up, rolled out, and it was pretty cool. It was like 15 to 18 degrees, clear skies, quiet. Not a, not a breath of wind, and we skied up there and got within about a half mile of the, um, 
half to a quarter mile from the face as far as we could ski. And then we dropped our skis at, um, at, the, at the bottom side of a crevasse and then made our way through the crevasse field up to, this, up to the wall. And the first part of the, and what we saw when I have the, the, the uh, poster in the car. Oh, yeah, is the poster in the, <laughs> the car? Po- we got a poster for you. Somebody's going to take away a poster. I got um, the poster of the, of the room. It's like, why is it here, right, for the story? Anyway. And we digress. So, and so we digress. <laughs> um, but so the, the route is, was really easy to see, if you had the poster. Um, but it is, there's, a, there's this, uh, there's an absolute cross in the face with these coulars that run up a lower buttress for like 3,000 feet, and then there's another 4,000 feet of a rib, um, and then to the summit. So it's about 7,000 feet of relief, and then a descent on a different um, ridge line, sort of a circling back to it. And the in, in, in the beginning, what's, what was dangerous or sort of um, foreboding was this big hanging glacier on one side that would uh, periodically just clean the valley, hmm. right? Just, like, come down. Anyway, so... Was it a Serac? Big one. Yeah. Yeah. And it would just shed and make tons of noise. Yeah, and, yeah. So, do you have to go underneath that on the route at all? Quickly. Okay. Quietly. Okay. Time out. Yeah. Right. And so the the bottom. And so it was. It was basically the the route was obvious. The the climbing, uh, the first pitch was uh, uh, was hard because it was vertical. Uh, sort of snow ice and Jack said you know this is my first pitch I want to lead it go ahead big boy right and yeah and Jack was was pumped too because oh, yeah. He just, yeah he's in Alaska and he had, he's like not sick anymore and mm-hmm. yeah yeah and the uh, so there's a couple things that are going on in my head about it because there's so Jack has been, been sick and I don't know what ha- what's going to happen with him right and what how he's going to perform and so I'm watching, and the other part is that that's uh, an integral to the story is that um, is that we changed I changed my training uh, the, in that six months before that and we started powerlifting, and um, with this guy up here is Andy Hall who's standing there, and I made him um, go to work with me in the morning to train, and so but the powerlifting really changed uh, the game exponentially for, because of the legs and things like that. And um, so I was basically the strongest I'd ever been as a climber and, as well as the most mature and sort of squared away. And uh, I was physically stronger than Jack and climbing stronger, but he was still Jack, which mm-hmm. meant... All this experience, all this talent was there, and he could he could lead this thing, and he was just fine, right? And the route was, um, by modern standards, wouldn't be considered particularly hard, but it was hard enough where you would have to take your pack off once in a while to, in order to pull an overhang or that kind of thing. But it's it's classic um, alpine climbing with 
using occasional eye screw um, pins and and rock protection through these runnels. And it's, you know, pro the overall, the bottom part of the face overall might be 60, 65 degrees in this overall perspective, but the, with pitches being vertical or less than that. Mm -hmm. So we meandered our way through there, and it's relatively quiet. And, um, quiet and it's, in terms of? There's no, there's no wind. There's no rock fall. There was the, the ice fall let go once we got past it. Thank God. Yeah, that was nice. <laughs> and and but it was it was it was it was it was there was no tension in the air. It was just we're just you know yeah. and and um, we were we were both you know talented enough I and mean, we were experienced enough that it was we were climbing a fairly high standard, but it wasn't at the edge of our own ability. So, right. so it was not like cragging where you're you're blowing your arms up or something like Getting that. Getting pumped on yeah no. five thirteen. Never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Never seen it. No. Um, so about so about uh, somewhere between twelve and fifteen pitches up, we emerged from the shadow and it, the, the, the angle lessened, and it looked like it was a place to take a break. And we had um, we had a tent. We had some other gear, and we were we weren't climbing uh, continuously uh, as a style, but we planned on spending a couple nights on it. So 12, and, okay, so 12, 13 pitches up is yeah. about how many feet? Uh, what was it, 1,800 feet? or 1,800 feet 15, up. 1,800, 2,000, something okay. like that, mm -hmm. right? The, bo the bottom third of the route. <clears throat> and, um, and it looked like there was one more, probably another 8, 10 pitches of technical climbing, and then we were on the top of this rib that would have been an alpine rib uh, uh, t through to the summit. No... No technical consequence, but still steep climbing. Uh, steep snow climbing. Yeah, and ice and yeah. through seracs and yeah. stuff like that. So, um, but. Um, so you do the first third. Yeah. You're cruising. You and Jack are feeling good, feeling strong, yeah. and then you decide to take a break. Yeah. Okay. And it's we merge from the we merge out of the shadow in these couloirs and these these runnels. And it also realize it's warm. It's really, really warm, and um, and he was and so he's Jack goes up about 60, 80 feet and is looking around for a place to cut a ledge and, and was sit down and have some water. And uh, I'm looking around and there's there's some rock falls starting. You can start to hear it coming, and then there's a little more of it, and then all of a sudden I look up and there's this like someone threw a briefcase over the top of the buttress and it's spinning on the end down and I yell rock, right? And, I, and as you, as many of you have experienced, if you, someone's yelling rock, you try to put your body underneath your helmet, everything, like your, your shoulders and your butt and you, you're, you crash, you're under the helmet. And uh, it's just this violence erupted uh, and the, you can hear the explosion of the gear not falling out but just the, the clattering of the gear on um, the rack the, on gear the, ra on the, rack? the rack on the jack's rack the, the rock fall and this this violence of being pulled up by jack because um, he's you know he's fallen and he's uh, and when he comes to a stop 
he's upside down and there's blood dripping down from his someplace out of his helmet and he's uh, he's out cold and the rack is sliding down his shoulder onto his arm and so I just I start to lower him and so just as he about to gets to me I pick the rack off of him before it goes and then before it slid off his arm yeah, and down the wall yeah and spun him uh, into position and what was because the the adrenaline and the was so intense that it was absolutely no effort to do this with one hand just turn him over short rope him to the wall and uh, and it and uh, it's 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 so violent the the sound and the and the and the uh, the kind of kinetic energy that's running through the rope systems and everything is just, is just is just violence and then it's over so um and it's quiet again it's quiet again and um so uh jack is he regains consciousness but is um not really aware and I've, you know, locked him into the wall. And then he slowly, actually not slowly, he fairly quickly regains his, um, his consciousness. And we have this conversation ab- about, you know, sort of assessing his injuries, right? And, he knew when he came. Oh, yeah, he was, yeah. He was and hurt. I can't, like, he couldn't move his arm. He was paralyzed. His, his head was slumped over. And, and he, had, he had broken his neck. And uh, he broke his, his te- front teeth out, and he had um, uh, some other shoulder injury or something. He was really throttled uh, and really violent. And, um, and then, so I just went into this mode of, uh, of, of stabilizing Jack. And so there was nothing in the world other than what would it take for Jack to be secure and then it was what would it take to for to make him um, you know feel you know like just, just be locked in but actually I'm, I screwed this up a little bit because when he when the accident first happened I thought that I was going to have to lower Jack and that, that was the option I was going to have to figure out how to lower him and so I went through this process of of figuring out, well, after I got him stabilized, I went through the process of how I was going to do this, and you know how many repels it would take, what the line was, you, you know, you, when you're with another, when you're with a dead body or a, 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 a sack of bones. back of bones, yeah. you can't change the line. You have to follow the line because where the ra- where the wrap anchors might be, we're going to be on that line. You can't change and go horizontal with 180 pounds. You got to you got to Try to figure out how to. You got to pick it right in the beginning, right, and where it would be and how what the sequence of events would. And so I would was um, I had him uh, in the sleeping bag, pulled over his head, and he had cut this ledge, and he was laid out, and it was sometime in the night, um, and uh, the, you know the Yukon in June is just beautiful, the the, the 
this uh, pink light, you know. And he goes, so wh- what are you thinking about? And I said... Well, this is, this is a moment that I read in his, actually in his account. He looks at you and he says, hey, Charlie, how you doing? I'm the strongest motherfucker on the planet. <laughs> Don't worry about it. No, you say, you say, that's what he's thinking, but he actually says, I'm fantastic. No, no. I said... Don't, don't, actually, what I said. So they changed it in the article. They changed the article, so you can't do the article, but it's like, it says, I'm the strongest motherfucker on the planet. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Because, because, what are you going to (laughs) do? Yeah. Because, you know, you have to have this attitude, it's going to be okay. And the first person you have to convince is yourself that it's going to be okay, right? And I, you know, I had... was convinced. Oh, yeah, it was like, you know, and so, I mean, it's delusional, but it's useful. Well, you don't have, you don't have a choice, because what, what are your options in that moment? I mean, you, you have no other options than to give yourself hope and to give him hope. Right. That's it's all a, you have. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so easy, because there are no options. Right. Yeah, it's just like, it's like, you think, oh, well, A, B, C, no, this is only one I can use. Yeah. So, um... Uh, he he sort of laughs at me, and um, and then we have this conversation that runs that's really intimate about um, you know I don't know if I'm going to live through this, and uh, I don't know how it's going to be for me, and what it's going to what I need to tell Pat, his girlfriend, which is his wife, and you know I mean it's it's all very. Um, it was the conversation that you would hope you had the courage to have in the moment and had it. And then, um, and then it's just silent, and I'm just working. And finally, I'd stopped for a long time, and he goes, well, now what, what are you thinking about? And I said, well, I'm figuring out how to lower you. And he goes, you, you can't do it. Goes, Why is that? He goes, well, it's too painful. I can't, I can't handle it. And so what he did was he gave himself to, up to me, gave me permission gave to leave. Gave me permission to he leave, He gave me yeah. permission to leave, right? Yeah. Because my, my commitment to him was to whatever it was going to take. And if you're going to wrap this wall with a, with a body, 180-pound body, on bad rock and stuff, it's going to likely kill you. With the warmth. That it was all of it, all it's not, the outcome is not Mm-mm. not good. But you just you just face okay. That's what we're gonna do. Cause that's what it, that's what we're gonna do, right? And I had made that decision, but he uh, gave me permission to leave. Is what that's that's the reason that we survived. Is that is that decision, and um, and then uh, okay, and then. Um, and then it was, what does it take to leave him, right? And so th- that was uh, this all in, this big long engineering event of trying to tie him in, pull the sl- pull him in a sleeping bag, pull the. I got pull, this. What's that? This is what Chackle says. Chackle. Ch- Chackle. <laughs> Uh, Charlie pulled the tent millimeter by millimeter around me as I sat in an upright state. Once I was inside, he put the pads, the sleeping bags, 
and all of my gear inside. He placed my pack underneath my head and hung the stove. Charlie had melted four and a half liters of water and he gave it to me along with the two and a half cartridges of fuel that remained. He left all the food except what he needed to get back to the base camp tent. Yeah. And putting the lighter in the right pocket <laughs> that he could get it out of his... With the one hand. The one hand, right? And so, and then there was also, what things you think about, so how do you keep them on the ledge? So I cut a hole in the side of the tent, put a screw in the wall, and then put a sling around his, his, his uh, uh, thighs to keep them on the wall. And then it, because, and the other piece of irony is because I was working for, uh, designing for Kelty at the time, and they built this, they said, they built a tent for me. Right? It was an asymmetrical tent, uh, and a, a two-wall eighth tent that would go on these walls. And the only time it was erected on the <laughs> fucking planet was around Jack. <laughs> it was it was it was like at the wall it was the side of the, the went in and it was like that, that works pretty good. <laughs> they, they didn't sell any more of those. <laughs> that I know of. But yeah. <laughs> So, so you screwed him in. I screwed him in. You had, and then, and and then, then he was tied off in his harness, and then I and I kept and I and I stole every inch of rope between Jack. Jack had, he had the rope to him to the har- to the to the main anchors, and I cut those super short so that I could have all of it. And then uh, it was sometime in the the early twilight and um, I be, uh, we had our departure and the, the, when you leave someone in that play, in that experience it is so hard because you're you you really know this is likely the last time that you will be together right and so um, and I've told this before but what came to me was the the speech that is given in um, Caesar when if we meet again at the end of the day we'll celebrate and if not it was a partying well spent right mm-hmm. but I didn't have the courage to say it <laughs> and so I did you know like fuck you <laughs> that's what you said to him really? yeah pretty much <laughs> what did he say back to you? fuck you too <laughs> no, but, no, but it was it was it was so lame. It was you. You have these, you know. It's like here's the moment, right? And, and you're lame about it. But um, but it was it was heartbreaking. But the weirdest experience of the departure was the first repel, right? And so that's the last moment you're together, and you're pulling the rope, and you can feel the they get the rope get lighter as it gets to the end, and it's gonna go. Right, and there's no going back when it goes like right through there, you know. And then Jack told me that how it felt on his end with the rope leaving because it's the separation is is permanent at that point. And then, Rob. and <laughs> I mean, well, for now, the permanent, you know, like, yeah. but you and it's uh, and then it was the work, and so 
The work. The work, the work. And that's the theme of this, of, of what happened and how I approached it and what in the history that I had that allowed me to get off of the root, which was you can't think of anything, everything. You can only think of what's next and what are the steps in next and compartmentalize them and just ch take a chunk that you can accomplish successfully and don't worry about the other thing because you may never get there. Yep. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. Small goals. Small little goals. Mm -hmm. And it was about that time that I could smell the fire. And there was a, the timber was burning uh, in Kulani, and there was a big fire. And then what had happened and what caused the wall to fall apart was that there was this um, inversion that brought ash and this big heat wave hit this wall, and that's what made the whole thing explode. We didn't, we didn't really anticipate or know or be aware of that, but that's what made the thing come apart. And that's where the heat came from. That's where the heat came from. Yeah. So, um, and then in the repels, um, and you know, I had a long history of getting off really weird pieces of stone and rice and, and so I had a lot in my quiver and I had this so I started this and I, and I started a relationship with the two ropes and I, I, had, I can't remember the colors but there was like the, the red one and the blue one and, and you're talking to them and you're repelling and you're just like this one is really kind of icky and, and all tatted and I don't like you as much this one's pretty and we like you more, and so and 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 but you're, but and so I'm talking to the ropes, and then uh, and then you're you're trying to figure out all the uh, all the little ways to conserve gear, but make it safe, right? And um, one of the one of the other wild experiences is there was one place there was an overhang, and the rock fall was pretty intense. Uh, by that time, and uh, so I had to time the rock fall to repel to the next place, and this big, and so I'm, I'm committed to, I commit to the repel, I'm about, you know, out, you know, 20 or 30 feet, and this stone the size of a, a basketball is just like coming right at my head, right, and you, you and just, you lock, you, you you lock eyes with it. Totally, it's like, it okay. is, it's got, I got you, right? And it, and it, and it's like, just slip it, right? Just so it's like it. time slowed down for you in that moment. Oh, totally. And you just sort of. No. <laughs> it's, it's like someone's punching you, and you slip. It's like boxer, slipping a punch. It's like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> no, it's it's. <laughs> you can't get too excited about it. You're like, okay. Small goals. Small goals. Dodge right? that bullet. Next right? bullet. Next bullet. Yeah. And and then this, and then I was re I was reading what I'd written right after, and there was some funny things about the relationship with the individual pieces of gear, right? And and I and I would like we had these Jack at the time was got to take these hexes because they're lighter than cams and like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and they, the damn things, and, and so, I but all the. <laughs> I love them. Well, yeah. It turns out they work, right? Yeah, they do. <laughs> and, and so, 
the, and the ropes were getting shorter because I, I ran out of, of, of um, nylon, so I'm cutting rope, one rope than the other rope for making up the anchors, and so the rappels are getting shorter, and, but you're using them up the, with the gear, right? And, uh, wow. but then the, the one that was really a strike, I mean, was, so I rappelled this line, and the next rappel was like 120 feet to one side, and I couldn't, um, I, I, the, the easy thing to do as a, a ledge is to walk across the ledge and start, set the, the rappel over, right? And the other side of me is, don't do that. Don't do that. Stay on the rope. Drag it over there. Reset it over there. Right? Don't, don't be tempted. Right? Because the cheating, a little bit of cheating, is is always is just fatal. Well, is it cheating or is it pushing yourself? No, that's cheating. Okay. <laughs> that's right. totally okay. cheating. Okay. Right? right? You know, right. you know that if you let go of that rope, the, the mountain's going to go. Oh, he's empty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And smack him. So. You know, well, you're vulnerable at that point. Totally too. vulnerable, right? So repel, get that one set up. But the last one was the last repel was really trippy because the ice climb that we had gone up had become sodden, and it what's, wouldn't support. What's my, sodden? It's called wet and sloggy and <coughs> smushy and no substantial nature anymore. Okay. And so the anchors were good, but the wall was vertical and. Um, and no, with no consistency. And so I had to, I just tucked my knees in and repelled on my side and I made this, like like your finger running through icing on a, like a slushy. <laughs> and went down the wall and I was going, just, just stay in place. Just like, you're, stay. you're soaking wet then. Totally, yeah, totally soaking wet. Yeah. By the bottom. And so, <laughs> and I get to the, the bottom, that's the last repel. So I don't need my ropes anymore. But what I do is I pull the ropes and coil them, <laughs> right? Why would you do that, right? And you have this relationship, this is travel, and then there's what, the really rope that you really, I really liked. I, t I took it with me. <laughs> well, I don't know why I did that, but I just took, I took it with me. I was like, okay, you know, we'll bury this one, and then I did have a little ceremony for that. And then, <laughs> so. Do you still have that rope that you took with you? Oh, no. No, they've, they've all died since then. But, and then so I was, so the, the repels are done. And the next section was to get to the skis. And uh, because of the uh, ash that had fallen on the glacier, the, the, the crevasses in the glacier was sagging. And it's like we had become late summer in one day, right? And the skis are about a quarter, half a mile away across the crevasse field and it's just you can see the glacier just falling into it so the snow falling into it and uh, and you're and, about to do that solo yeah and i don't like that nobody should no. like that and uh, so this basically it was like it was trying i had to continue to slow down to try to listen to what my intuitions were telling me and experience and also trying to understand the real subtle elements of the contours. And so I just, you know, made my way through this, sometimes scampering, sometimes crawling. But the coolest thing was right at the end, there was, I 
I can, I can just, you can feel the crevasses. And, and so you're just going to like, hey, I need to stop, right? And get down and crawl down on your hands and knees. And then it's there. There's, there's some abyss in front of me, but you don't see it. It's covered. And eventually I find the edge and open it up. And there's this beautiful crescent-shaped crevasse that, of indeterminate depth from black to blue and to white in this crescent shape and up to the sky, right? So I just stopped <clears throat> and took this break. And I memorized this scene because it was so beautiful. And it was like, when will you ever see this again, right? So I just, I just absorbed it for the experience and, um, and then got the skis. So I'd made the second phase, and then it was getting to the phone. So you broke your... Uh, descent. You yeah. broke your descent into three chunks. Yeah. The rappel being the first. Yep. Crossing the glacier being the second. Yeah, getting to the skis. Getting to the skis being the second, and then crossing, or going back from the skis to, to the, the tent yeah. as your third. Exactly. So they're all like micro goals. Right. Okay. So in this one... Um, the skis give you a lot of options that are not falling in crevasses. Okay, we can... That's, that's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and, but um, the fog had come in. And so there's no... There's the, Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And it would come in and it would, and it would wane over the, gla the glacier. And, I, and so I had the summit of, um, of uh, Logan was directly above our tent. And I had memorized the orientation, and so I just used some of the Logan to orient myself, and then the fog would roll up, and I would stop and just wait for the fog to abate, and then ski some more, and they would come back and stop. And finally, it just, those steps, just very, very slowly. I didn't take my skins off. I went as slow as possible, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And then, um, and you're not following your ski tracks because it was so crusty. You didn't have, you didn't have ski tracks, right? right? There's no. So no you time. really are, orienting via Logan. Yeah. Okay. And um, it was, a, I think it was eight hours that was. Uh, I was worked on Jack for eight, and I, it may have been another eight or, or ten, I can't remember how many hours it was that in the transit to there. But I was on the move. It was on the move for thirty by the time I got to the um, back to the tent. Thirty total hours that your body was moving. Yeah. And let that soak in for a second. <laughs> thirty hours of body movement. And I I couldn't speak because I hadn't drank very much. <clears throat> yeah. And you know I had left all the resources with uh, with Jack, other than a little bit of food, and. Um, so I got to the, and I knew what I was going to do, which was, I, I was married to Siri Moss at the time. I was going to call Siri, and I and I did, and I said, call that guy, Daryl Miller, and tell him to get the llama, right? Okay, what's the llama? It's a helicopter in Talkeetam, and tell tell Daryl that this is just like Malcolm Daly, and we need a long haul. Right and and that Jack is gravely injured and he's got just a handful of days, but that's what it is, right? That's what you told Siri Moss. Yeah, 
and she, and I said, there's a JPEG, this is the first years, the first years of electronic uh, images, and there's a JPEG on the computer under this file, and we are at the cross on the route. That's where Jack is, right? And so Daryl, in just, and this is, this is the remarkable, I, I don't, I think this is the remarkable part of the story because we're here, I'm here because our friends were around us, right? And our friends included Daryl and the Park Service and the guides up there and then Kalani, the, uh, the park there. And, and so he, he, in about an hour or two, he organizes for the U.S. military to invade Canada, <laughs> right? What they did, right? And that redhead back there is part of the um, team. Of the name two team. Name is name. That guy right there, yeah. Dave Schumann, like I that. Invaded Canada. Yeah, he he he'd already <laughs> been to Canada before, right? He looks Canadian. No, so <laughs> they uh, they. Uh, launch a rescue with is it two twelve tenth or when that time two twelve two twelve or and, and they launch a rescue. They pick up um, Daryl picks up uh, Michael Kaitis and Kelly Cordis and what? Joe Riker Colby huh Colby Colby, and Colby. Joe yeah Joe Riker. Joe is on the aircraft with um, the uh, and helicopter. They fly down and that evening. That I uh, that I was there, and I hear him, but you can't they can't do anything. But I knew he was there, and Jack knew there. And so the next day, the rescue ensued, uh, where Schumann comes out of the um, the aircraft and on a wire and goes up and cuts Jack out of the uh, out of it. There's there's a couple other really odd perspectives to this. One is that. Um, the pilot, um, he had done two things. He had studied this rescue down on Mount Hood where he saw this um, uh, Black Hawk lose ground effect in the direction it was oriented to the, to the mountain and roll, and roll down and in a rescue. And, so, and he had been on St. Elias with Schumann a month before with some snowboarders that were had decided to slide off the mountain. And so th these guys had the talent, and, and Dave had already been on the wire with Daly, so that was all the same people, right? Right. And so uh, they came, cut Jack out of it, swung out, and... And I'm sure it wasn't that easy, was it, when he, he just says, cut Jack out of it? It wasn't that yeah. Okay. But the, the other, the other, the, I don't know. If, I gotta ask Dave this story, but I heard this from Jack. But this is like a Clint Eastwood moment, which is, so, Jack he cuts open the the tent, right? And Jack's there with a lanyard, going clip here, right here, right, and the wire starts to go tight, and then they realize that the lanyard is around the tent pole. Correct. It's true. That, that's a bad thing. So it's going tight. So you go, clip, clip. There's nothing. There's no, there's no protection. You're sitting on nylon over 2,000 feet up the wall. 
and they had and they've reclipped completely on completely naked in the moment. Well, you got to do what you got to do, I guess. Yeah, it turns out, it turns out that they got to be talented too. Yeah. <laughs> Small goals. Small. So, uh, what was it like for you sitting on the glacier in the tent when you first heard the rotors? Oh. Well, the Oh, the yeah, that was that was a huge relief. I mean, I knew there there was a chance the the big the big release was when after I made the phone call I broke down and just screamed and sort of cried and just got this all this emotion just like Bleh, right because you hadn't been doing that no no it's like I'm cool as cool as can be you know I can handle it I'm gonna walk to Seattle if it has to happen I I got that sort of attitude but when the phone call was done I was a jello head and so. Um, and then uh, as soon as it, I heard that he was off, then I just drank a bottle of scotch. On the glacier by yourself? Absolutely. <laughs> and I called everyone. He is that much. I, I drunk dialed everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and then to my friends, Paul, Paul Claus. Paul Claus was flying to cover. And, and gave them the information that it was the, that there was a uh, break in the weather to come get them. And because when they flew in, there was they couldn't see they didn't couldn't see the ground. There was and there was an opening between about um, eight and eleven thousand feet that was open. And so it's there's it's completely cloud covered on top ceiling and the bottom. So they they were really naked. And Jack tells the story that when he's coming through on the wire into the back of the aircraft, you know, there's these red lights blinking. What's We're that? Out of fuel. Out of fuel. <laughs> fuel right? <laughs> They're out of they had to dump enough fuel, they were out of fuel. Right? And so then they got the C one thirty and made contact and refueled. So it's 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 stunning the amount of good I mean it tells you how talented everybody was all the way around and how committed they were to helping us. I mean that's that's the that's the essence of it. You have ridden the line of risk and adventure for 20? 50 years. 50 years? Okay. Yeah. And, and so, like, how do, you, how do you put that trauma behind you? Like, how do you continue to, to push yourself so hard when you've gone through such traumatic experiences watching your like having to leave your friend yeah. up there and the, well it, it, the answer is different depending on how old I was or what the experiences that I had um, at that time and when you're really young you you know you you're there's a lot of bravado and it turns out that that's a good thing for protecting yourself and um, and I had you know sort of uh, a lot of skill in compartmentalizing and making putting stuff away which therapists would have a lot of fun with but um, <laughs> but it's useful it's useful and then um, and then there's uh, and then there's also in these are younger you know there's there's all this ego associated with being cool and being um, doing the hard roots and being recognized and I would because um, 
Alpine climbing was I would have an objective and I would live that objective until it was completed and then sort of deal with the, the consequences later. But it was, it was all incumbency. And even though it would take a year of work to get there, it would, and it were only two or three days worth of execution, there would be sort of a half-life of that experience that would sort of take some time to work through. And so um, uh, we, and we would just change our direction, right? And then eventually it's sort of, there's accumulation of experiences that, you, that um, it didn't motivate anymore. And so I couldn't, I couldn't get excited to be in that biggest, uh, to do, take that bigger risk anymore. So I don't have the, I don't have the stuff anymore, mm-hmm. you know. So was that one of your last big risk? I don't know. It would, I mean, maybe not. But um, you know, I went to Fitzroy after that, and um, but it was it was mild compared to the mm-hmm. stuff, you know. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you, Charlie, and I I want to leave some space for folks yeah. to ask whatever questions to Charlie Sarah that you have. Clint. Are you still the strongest motherfucker on the planet? <laughs> Definitely gonna have to beat oh, yeah. those words out. I got you, bastard. <laughs> That's I'm just <laughs> he's talking to him. <laughs> I have no, no, obviously not. <laughs> but I mean, that, no, it, it still it's it it still matters to um, to steal yourself. And to have um, the confidence that you can do it. I mean, you gotta you gotta put the work in. You gotta you gotta you gotta really make yourself hard to kill. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you can't you can't go up there sloppy. Yeah. Because you'll die easily. I mean, you want to die harder. <laughs> than <it. laughs> I think. Yes. So you weren't planning on repelling that rat. You were planning on hiking off it. Pardon? That that the, the rat. You weren't planning on repelling that. You, you no, no. Yeah, that's right. There's a traverse that goes o- up and over the route, and there is a ridge line that uh, we could climb down. So it was a. It wasn't. It was inconsequential compared to the other part, but it was obvious. So how close were you to being committed and not being able to repel? Um. Well, given the math of how many pieces of gear, (laughs) about there. (laughs) I had one baby angle left. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, that's a really, that's a really, that's an interesting point. I hadn't considered that piece of it, but um, the the, the other dilemma, interesting element of, there's, you know, the hardest part about a route is the last moment that you can go back, right? Because once you're committed, you can't go back. It's like, it's easy. I'm going over the top, right? But when you're in the middle of the ground, you're going this way or that way, which, which, is, which is a better uh, approach. But, yeah, we were, if any much higher, there wouldn't have been enough. And if that's the case, then it would have been... Uh, I don't know Jack or I would have lived through it, you know. I mean, I, I would have had, had it. I would have had a shot at it, but I had to clean, finish the route. And um, there was, um, and, and I, 
you know, if you have to, in that situation, I could have soloed the rest of it, but, you know, that's kind of talking big. How bad were Jack's injuries? They were um, near fatal, and then when he didn't die uh, for the, um, the event, right, he got better pretty quickly um, because he broke his neck and, uh, and, you know, he had a lot of, and had a lot of nerve trauma. Um, yeah, he was paralyzed for a couple, for an hour or two where he couldn't move his shoulder and such. Yes. So, so he got rescued pretty fast. Yeah, it was uh, the, uh, the day after I called. If he hadn't been rescued that efficiently and that quickly, do you think he would have survived a day or two days? Or Well, I, I thought that he had three days in him when I was on the glacier. And I thought that, and what hurt so much is I thought that I had lost somebody that we loved so much, you know. But he, he, um, but he, he was able to stay hydrated. And uh, and he managed himself pretty well there, and managed the stove and things like that. So more than likely, he could have survived another day or two. Yeah, I think he, in retrospect, a guy thought he had internal bleeding, because he had so much pain in his abdomen, because he didn't want to, he couldn't, I couldn't move him, I and mean, it was just excruciating. So I was figuring that he was had some internal bleeding that wasn't going to last, but it didn't. And he probably, in, in given what the injuries actually were, he could have been up there three or four more days. But you don't know that. Yeah. Were there any lessons that you learned that you could uh, relate to climbers going to the range, whether it's for their first time or for their 30th time, to try an easy route or a super hard route? you got to pick your partner. <laughs> That's the that's the, the most fundamental um, point in it because um, and because it you know that type of climbing is um, is deadly if uh, and you have to have someone that you trust that you're going to engage in this activity with um, because um, it's um, it is that dangerous. And, uh, you know, so that's, I would say it's, it's the selection of the partner because um, you have to be in sync. You have the same motivation. And the irony is that you have to be strong enough in your own self that I can go alone. Um, you know, Clint, I'm, you're a great guy. You're dead. I'm going to go home, right? And then I'll deal with the emotional part of that later. But each of you have to be so strong that, that then when you're together, you're, you're really an exceptional team, right? But there's, no, there's also a, la there's a detachment and, but of, I can do this by myself, that sort of attitude, and um, which makes the collective really strong. But if you are really dependent on that for other person to do the leading or to do this, to do that, and you can't pull your weight, then you're really at risk. So you got to pick someone that you're comparable to and that you trust. That's the big one. Yes. 
Yeah. Uh, what was the best decision you feel like you made on that whole trip? Well, the, the most important one was accepting what Jack, Jack's permission, right? And not arguing with him, and this, and uh, because it was the gift, he was giving me the opportunity to live, right? And I didn't want to, ex I didn't want to accept it, but I accepted it, right? And so. Um, but you, you know that that's what's, what's really in, that's, that's what's at stake. So that was, and um, so I wasn't, I, had, I was selfish enough to take the opportunity when it was presented. And the other one was, it was the practice of opening my mind, just trying to see uh, a lot, even though you're focused on this little work right here, was to open my mind to see where the rocks were going and how the wall was, Trans, how I was in this place, and so it's this going in and out between hyper focus to the soft awareness to see uh, and sense where the danger is. Yes. Did you see like the rock hit Jack? No, I was, I I I, I was under this piece of fiberglass that yeah. was that big, all of me. So obviously, a sat phone. Yeah. Was key for your success there mm -hmm. and in, in affiliation with the Air National Guard and Daryl Miller yep. Park Service. That's a huge network of support that we yeah. have. In retrospect, next time if you climb a wall like that, would you take that sat phone with you or would you leave it in your tent? Well, okay, the good, it's a good question. And I want to answer it in two ways. One is that in my whole climbing career, I used whatever technology was available. It didn't matter. When I went to McKinley in the winter for, in 83, my dad gave me an um, ELT out of his airplane. They didn't have them, right? <laughs> I took that. I'm going to take whatever the advantage is, technologically. The sat phone wouldn't make any difference because the latitude, and we were on a north face, you couldn't hit on a satellite. How did that change your uh, planning, how you approach routes? after that experience like what did you what did you do different or the same or oh, what did it another good question um, oh well, here's a really easy one which is Jack has asked me to go back a couple times and I go I don't know about that <laughs> yeah he did it today too I don't know man he thinks as we, I don't. I don't know how you eclipse the experience, right? Who cares? We can call the top of it, you know. Um, uh, the um, I, I think it goes back to it reinforced how important it is this. The first selection is who that you're going with, right? Evan, I've asked this question before, but I just want to ask it again. Uh, do you think you've been lucky? <laughs> You're looking at the luckiest outcome. <laughs> so, and so, yeah, big time. <laughs>
Thanks to Evan Phillips with Podpeak and The Friendline for recording the audio for me. And thanks to Charlie Cicera for recounting such a rad story. Thanks to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor. And thank you to Kavu. Designed in Seattle, Washington, Kavu has been weaving fun into everything it produces since 1993. Kavu is an acronym for Clear Above, Visibility Unlimited, when there isn't a cloud in the sky and you can see all the way to the horizon. That limitless feeling is their guiding philosophy and the attitude Kavu brings to all they do. It means making the most of every day and getting out and doing whatever puts a smile on your face. Kavu clothing, bags, and accessories are an expression of this approach to life. Get busy living. American Alpine Club members can visit gear discounts at AmericanAlpineClub.org to receive 50% off at Kavu.com. Remember, play hard and be smart.